Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. All right. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about speculation versus investment, aka cash flow versus capital appreciation. But we got a lot to discuss before we do that. How's it going, Nick? It's going very well. And I'm excited to really talk about the difference here between speculation versus investment because major differences uh, that have been very confused by the general public over the last several years. But Dan, you're right. Before we get into it, let's chat a bit about merch. We got awesome Christmas sweaters. So if you want to be the blatantly real estate person at your family Christmas or your work party, go get one of these obnoxious Christmas sweaters that we have and love. The meetups have been awesome. Man, I tell you, we like, so first, second Tuesday of every month, we probably had over a thousand people out across the country, coast to coast. I've got some calls later on today where I think we're going to be onboarding some new champions. They're going to be hosting meetups in their city. So if you don't have a meetup in your city and we still need a ton of cities and there's a lot of cities that we can look at the data analytics from our listeners and there's thousands of people in this city that listen to the podcast and there's just no one there hosting meetups. So if you want to be the go-to person, reach out and we will hop on a call, make sure that our values align. We'll send you a banner, help you get set up and boom, you're in business. I had a great time last time. I I had probably 50 plus people show up. We had people from the commercial real estate space. We had developers. We had people that had literally gotten the real estate license like two weeks ago. Really great time, really great conversations, people doing deals, people learning from each other, making new connections. I got potentially a huge deal out of it, which we'll see how that one turns out. But yeah, really exciting stuff. And then we, before we get into the episode, of course, we need to talk about the course. Yeah, I suppose it would be appropriate to do that, especially because we cover a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about in the course in today's topic. Sorry, mm-hmm. a lot of the things that we're talking about in today's topic in the course. So, I mean, we're really excited about this. We're gonna we're, we haven't launched it yet, as you might have noticed. We thought we were going to have it already, but we are waiting on like a bit of like a pitch video just to explain to everybody kind of like what it is, and we're also going to release like a a longer like free video that it's a lot long. of work a lot of work getting this thing up yeah, and running well as everybody knows we're not really video guys we kind of like just started cross posting these to youtube to try and make some like instagram reels and um we like have no objection to being lo-fi yeah which is funny You're not catching us in the in some the... of our comp- i think most of our competitors would be very hi-fi when it comes to video or not competitors but other people in the space and they you know and it's like it's definitely more for the video audience, which is like good. It's a great way to make a lot of content at scale. We just, video is definitely more of an afterthought for us. So we're getting there guys. We ordered some cool gear and we'll, we'll, we'll try and level up a little bit on the video here. But anyway, to get to the course. So we've revised, we've revised the curriculum, but -hmm. basically the idea is to show you from start to finish how to buy your first asset roadmap, a roadmap. And it's, and it's pretty thorough walkthrough. I think like we even have some experienced investors in the course and we were getting testimonials recently from them. And, um, 
I was like blown away, like just to hear that we've created that much value for people who yeah. already have portfolios, perhaps even more than ours, right? Yeah. So yeah, or or maybe not more so than ours, but but just different than ours as well, right? Doing different things, different types of investing, and it's it's really exciting, man. Like we we've we've covered a lot of ground, and and we're just getting started here, right? The the goal here is to build out a, a community, a nationwide community, coast to coast of people who love real estate, who want to understand it. We're going to be bringing in expert panelists to to do deep dive yeah. on uh, on specific subject matter. But let's not get too deep into this, Dan. Why don't we just do a quick walkthrough of kind of what the eight core yeah. uh, chapters are for now? And again, we'll this is an ongoing thing. This isn't a one and done, but this is what we've got right now. Yeah. So we're going to start off with a why, you know, creating your investment thesis and why you're doing everything, the kind of Simon Sinek approach, like start with why. The next piece is picking a market. So choosing a market. And one of the things actually, this is one of the good examples of where we actually change the content a little bit based on the audience. A lot of people are like, I think the biggest thing most people struggle with is I can't pick one market. And it's like, yeah. okay, we'll pick three and then look for deals in all of those three markets. It just means that you have to look three times as much. Exactly. And then with that, by picking a market and you have picked three, but then you have to go back to your why and your investment thesis and what part of your thesis makes the most sense in that market. And after you've found multiple deals in your market, which is the third part, finding a deal in that market, the next one is building your power team. And they all are part of one another, right? Because if your power team is more prominent in one market, well, that's a possible determining factor to make your first purchase in that market. It's true. Yeah. I mean, it could actually really make you more likely to get a deal in, in the market where you have the strongest team, right? So, and, and that power team is like realtor, mortgage professional, um, insurer, contractor. You know, contractor. Lawyer. We talk about how to do that. Yeah. And how to activate them throughout the process. The next piece is analyzing a deal and doing what we call pre diligence, which is to, you know, gather as much information as possible to make sure that you're going into the offer process as strong as possible rather than having to include a big provision for due diligence after and have a big cumbersome due diligence process like financing inspection etc mm -hmm. get as many of those questions answered before you make the offer then the next piece is actually making the offer which is an entire lesson and then closing the deal and doing due diligence is is number seven and then finally taking possession of the property executing managing the property and the entire thing is kind of set up in such a way that it's it's deliberate about scale right yeah, and we exactly one of the things we're going to be talking about today which we can segue back into is you know, the important piece of, of scale is each asset needs to get you closer to buying the next one, not further away from it, right? How do you do that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you do that by investing rather than speculating. Ah, and, and actually, yes. to be fair, you could do it by speculating if your speculative bet really, go, you know, does well and you make 20% on a million dollar, you know, unit and that gives you $200,000 down payment to go buy another place, yeah. right? So that's that's how it pays off with speculation. It's just a little bit of a higher risk. Well, and simply put, you said it right there, right? Speculation is a bit more of a bet, a bit more of a gamble, whereas investment is, is a thought out process of trying to buy something that is going to provide cash flow and capital appreciation, which is, again, topics that we are going to discuss today. So should we just get right into yeah, it at this point? In. So yeah, so today we're going to be talking about investment versus speculation, which could also be known as ca cash flow versus capital appreciation. So quick summary, things that need to go right with an investment is basically your income stream needs to pay you rent each month. Things that need to go right with a speculation is the interest rates might need to stay where they are or go down. House prices would need to rise or asset values would need to rise. The market that you chose to speculate in would need to remain attractive, et cetera, et cetera. So the point here is that 
while speculation is an avenue to make a lot of money, there's a, it's a lot harder. It's a lot more sophisticated. And I, I don't do it. And I would say I, I spend a lot of time researching this. I'm probably, you know, I make a, an effort to be among the more knowledgeable people in the, in this space. But, and so, and so I think people who are speculating based on far less information than I, well, we're seeing the consequences of that in the market yeah. right now. I guess it goes without saying. So a lot of unfortunate stuff. Okay. So let's dive into an investment. The objective of an investment, the primary goal of investing is wealth preservation and the gradual sustainable growth. So wealth creation over time. Investors typically seek to build wealth by holding assets that have the potential to appreciate over a long time horizon. And time horizon is another key factor. Investors generally have a long-term time perspective, often with the intention of holding those assets for years, if not decades. And then we talk about this all the time, Dan, you know, real estate, if you're buying a piece of real estate that you're not speculating on, such as a flip or, you know, back in the days when you used to execute burrs, like it was nobody's business, or if you're flipping pre-construction, you know, assignments, you should be holding your real estate asset for the minimum of a five-year mortgage term, which is, of course, the most common mortgage term in Canada, because you barely pay off any principal during that five-year mortgage term. The longer, the better, especially in real estate. Another key piece to remember is risk management. Investments are chosen based on fundamental analysis, assessing the intrinsic value of that asset, the quality of the underlying business or property, and the potential for steady income or growth. An example would be buying a diversified portfolio of stocks, bonds, or real estate with the expectation of earning returns over an extended period of time through dividends, interest, or capital appreciation. Now, we kind of gave some examples because we quickly touched on this in an episode. I believe it's the one just before this where, you know, an example for stocks of real estate or, or sorry, stocks versus uh, an investment for speculation. Stocks would be something like a longstanding CN rail or a Walgreens was something like you just pulled up versus speculation, which would be GameStop. Right. And like the, the wall, I use Walgreens as an example because like I follow a lot of people who've been talking about it on uh, Twitter and it's like, it's trading at like a 9% dividend yield right now. Right. So like, okay. so then that Walgreens. to me, yeah, exactly. Right. So, so to me, it's like, I mean, I don't like, Do they have a tech play that I'm yeah. aware of or something. <laughs> you know, it's just so underpriced. Right. So, uh, or not, maybe not underpriced. Not, I'm, we, we don't, we're not even going to go into that scope, but, yeah, but we'll just, leave that just as the... a thought process, like just looking at an information piece of information, there's a dividend yield and that could be more equivalent to your, your rent right? That you would mm-hmm. be getting off of a real estate asset. And so the, the key piece that you mentioned towards the end there was that the expectation of earnings re- or earning returns over an extended period, right? Because you mentioned capital appreciation, but it's like, okay, well, we're going to accumulate that capital appreciation over a long period of time more predictably. So it's like, you know, I'm going to make a 6.11% rate of return on real estate, let's say historical average mm-hmm. over 10 years. Because it, Real estate's incredibly expensive. Like this is really the the big difference, the big line in the sand between real estate and stocks is like you sell a stock, what does it cost you? Well, I'm buying penny stocks, junk bonds. And stuff. <laughs> so you know, I'm the wrong guy to ask. But, but uh, okay, but you know, I mean, how you, long you can take? get into the stock market for literally like a few bucks, right? Not if you're buying, you know, Berkshire and Apple and Google. But let's say you're you're buying a a stock at at twenty five bucks a share. You wanna you want you want to get in and out ASAP. Well, you can literally day trade and be in one day and out the other. You could probably be in one day and later out later that afternoon. Right, and and. It costs what nine dollars to open and close a position. Yeah. 
I think, like ten bucks. Let's say. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, you got your your trading fee at yeah, probably ten bucks. Yeah. So if you open a thousand dollar position, it costs you one percent. So, whereas real estate, you've got, you go buy a thousand dollar duplex and, and flip it later <laughs> that afternoon, right? Same but, thing. But with real estate, and this is where like. I haven't even gotten to speculation yet, and I'm already bashing it. But no, this is where it becomes <laughs> this is where it becomes more difficult, right? Because when you buy real estate, you're you're switching costs. You could easily round them up to five percent coast to coast, even yeah. though I know commissions are lower in some markets and whatever. But, but you've it's got not just commissions, land right? transfer it's... tax on the way in. You've got a mortgage penalty on the way out. You got a land transfer tax on the way into the next one. You have got capital legal gains fees. tax, legal fees. Like there's so many different costs associated with it that. As a buy low, sell high kind of thing. Never as heard a, that yeah, one you know, I do the buy high, sell low method. <laughs> yeah, right. Personally, right. That's when, when it comes to stocks. So let's talk about speculation. So the objective of speculation is to buy low and sell high. Speculators aim to to profit from short term price fluctuations, often driven by market sentiment rather than intrinsic value of the asset. And the goal is to to buy low and sell high, probably more quickly. I mean, the the, the best example of this would be probably pre-construction contracts right now where you're buying something that you don't even actually own the hard asset. You own the right to purchase it in the future. Right. It's the easiest you, way. If you want to learn more about that, we did an episode with Jordan Scrinko yeah. who, who did an in-depth analysis. On, we should actually on, have him because he's like a bear now. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I know. It's no. crazy. Wow. Yeah, Market yeah, has changes people out there. Oh man. It's it's getting rough. I would imagine probably in, in, pre, in pre-con especially is yeah. probably, I mean, like we've seen a couple months back to back of like record low uh, sales volume. So Jordan, if you're listening, it's, uh, it's time to come back on, buddy. Come on, we'll give you a hug. Yeah. <laughs> um, Bear hug. Yeah. So I think like the speculation pieces, it differs on time horizon, especially it has, would have a shorter time frame. you know, even for people who are climbing the housing ladder, as an example, on average, people, Canadians are staying in their house like three to four years, which is crazy. I think that that'll change now that capital costs. But before it was like, it was cheap to switch, cheap to go refi, you know, you could house prices were climbing, so you could step up that that housing ladder really quickly. Now I think that that'll that'll extend probably closer to the U.S., where you have like I think an eight year on average, and they don't have mortgage terms like we do, right? So, but the most common time for somebody to sell one asset is after a mortgage term. So they buy it, hold it for five years, rather than refinancing, sell it and get a mortgage, new mortgage on the new on a new place and step up. And speculators, and you can see this in real estate, people flipping, people buying and selling a lot of stuff. They tend to exit, enter and exit positions more rapidly to capitalize and lock in at that price, right? So if you were, if you were flipping or if you were buying and selling stuff to try and realize that, those gains, you know, to increase the likelihood of you having a realizing capital appreciation and getting that big bag of cash, you would sell relatively off. You'd sell one of your houses, let's say in, in the flipping example, relatively often. And then you'd, ha- you'd be sitting on a $200,000 bag of cash and you'd be going to buy another one, pay your capital gains, go buy another one. And eventually maybe it ends up being a game of hot potato. You get stuck, burned on one of them. But if you've done four or five iterations of that already in the past, you know, if you did this from 2020 or, you know, 20 let's say 2015 to 2023, right? So eight years. Your bag of cash You would have won. Yeah, you would have won in 2015. You would have won in 2016. You would have lost in 2017. Maybe lost in 2018. So that's, you know, 50-50 right there. You would have won in 2019, 2020, 2021. 2022, you would have lost. 2020, you could have lost maybe on COVID, but you would have had, I mean, you'd be be basically 75%. Yeah. Right? So 60 or 75 60 or 70%, let's say, of, of a win ratio. So, and, and 
completely different economy, but just, you know, for the, if you're looking at back testing it for 10 years, back test it for 30 years since the nineties. And you would have, it would have been very few losses mm. since the, since the last trough of a housing cycle, not, not financial advice, by the way, <laughs> but um, <laughs> the next piece is the risk profile. And this is where it becomes important. It's like the years that you did lose, you probably lost a lot, right? So speculative activities are riskier than traditional investments and they may rely on some technical analysis, but it's real. It really is just that market sentiment piece rather than fundamental analysis. So examples of speculation rather than investment would be day trading stocks, right? Buying options in real estate, I guess trading crypto would be a good example as well. And and buying and selling options. And then also I think the, you know, the most easy comparison is a pre-construction, which is basically an option, but for real estate. A future, Jordan, yeah. Jordan, Jordan puts on his Twitter, like yeah. uh, he sells condo futures. Condo futures. That's it. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, for me, speculation kind of comes down as I, as I mentioned it, it is a much more of a gamble and just like, you know, gambling in the casino, you can win, but there's that age there's that old adage of uh, the house always wins. And I feel like that's the same case with speculation. And if you want to get even more cliched, you can look as investments as time in the market and speculation as timing the market. You like that one? Yeah, that's good. Is that, I, I think I heard this guy say this on a podcast. <laughs> His name is Nick Hill. <laughs> uh, okay. You, so you're going to credit him. You know what? He sounds like a good guy. I'll give him credit. Okay. Nick Hill original right there. Let's move on. So that's, that's speculation versus investment. Let's now look at cash flow versus capital appreciation. So cash flow is defined as it refers to the income generated from a real estate investment typically through, you know, bi-weekly or monthly rental payments from your tenants, whether that be commercial tenants, retail tenants, multifamily tenants. The goal is to have steady income that exceeds the expenses associated with owning and managing that property. The advantages are it provides you regular income, which can be useful for covering Things like mortgage payments, property maintenance, and other expenses, and it offers a predictable and stable return on that investment, and it can be particularly attractive for income-oriented investors such as retirees looking for passive income, again, like trade out dividend stocks and replace that with rental. And Dan, we've also seen this with VTBs, right? If you can get a good VTB going, that's essentially the same thing as, as getting a dividend. And, and we won't dive into that because I know we've covered it on on other episodes. You just made a great Instagram reel about VTBs because they're way up right now. So if anyone hasn't gone and seen that at Daniel Foch on Instagram, go check him out. And I, I believe you were offering a, even a list of, of active Yeah, I did VTBs. have a list of active VTBs in the in the GTA. Also, if you're a realtor from anywhere in Canada, send us a message to the show with a link to the a list of VTBs available on your market. So the way I found it was I just searched in the broker comments, the broker remarks, like the private remarks on the MLS. I don't know what your MLS capability is in various board to board, but because a lot of the people who were asking me for that list were like, oh, I didn't realize it was just GTA. I didn't realize how many non-GTA followers I had. You're national, baby. I guess. I don't know. So <laughs> yeah, if you're a realtor from anywhere else in Canada, send me that uh, the v- the list of properties that are offering VTBs because I have people all over the country looking for their specific market. So I can probably get it in the hands of some people, maybe get you some clients. Happy to do that. Love um, it. I think the one other advantage that's worth noting here is that it's visible, right? Like, or it, it's, it happens more regularly. So you know 
if something has gone wrong, you know immediately. If somebody you doesn't pay what, rent, you know that um, month. Whereas yeah. if it doesn't pay you your capital appreciation, you don't. You know in five years. Or you know, like like day two. Like if you're collecting, you know, I always love the memes of of landlords on on Instagram with it's like a bunch of guys like throwing money around on on the first of every month kind of thing. Right, right. <laughs> Some considerations to keep in mind with cash flow are properties with higher cash flow potential may be located in areas with lower potential for significant appreciation. Now, that's an interesting one because it sounds like the opposites are happening and they are in areas where like Toronto, where you're going to have much higher capital appreciation. It's hard to hit those, you know, ancient rules like the 1% rule, where if you buy um, a property for X number of $500,000, it'll pay you 5000 that kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore. So it is opposite. Do you think that COVID broke that? Like, do you think that that yeah. the decentralization of the workplace has changed? Like, look at look at Cornwall. Okay. Like, I, I love Even Cornwall. though we've like mispriced the market now by talking about it on the show. Stop um, buying stuff in Cornwall, guys. Leave it <laughs> but, for us. <laughs> but look at like uh, Sudbury or like Calgary yeah. or Halifax, right? Th- those cities went up just as much in value, if not more than core Toronto. I yeah. think we'll, we'll see how core Toronto and Vancouver are resilient against recession, but comparatively, and that would really be the, the ultimate test. But, mm. you know, the suburban GTA w- accelerated more than, than core Toronto and a lot of suburban areas and a lot of around a lot of major cities out accelerated the cores, but they also reco- the GTA at least recoiled. You didn't see it in Halifax. You saw a bit in Halifax. You haven't seen it at all in Calgary. Calgary's mm-hmm. still like yeah. setting all time highs, which is anyway. Whole different I, story. I, my, yeah. my things to say about that, but it feels a little overbought. Just saying. I, I guess my question is like, do we think that those areas where you're going to get the one percent, or sorry, the the areas where the one percent? And I, I I've written it into the notes because so I, I have my own thesis on it, but like. The, a Cornwall like doubled in value. Right? Yeah. A Sudbury doubled in value. A Halifax or a Moncton, right? Like they those like probably have gone up in the double digit percents year over year for several years straight because of the decentralization. Now, I mean, I think it it was a matter of of human behavior at that point, right? You start messing with uh, what the cities have to offer and start taking them away from people. Well, those people are going to go find other things elsewhere and, and you know that's why we saw uh, if you go look at the u-haul index which is another amazing piece of uh information that we pull a lot from you saw mass exoduses from major city centers into those secondary and tertiary markets into smaller provinces and and that was a for a desire for people to not only you know seek out affordability but to get a backyard to have a garage to to have those things so and then for investors, the same thing, right? It was like, well, you know, numbers and, and deals don't pencil out in my backyard anymore Whether if you live in some of these major places. So you had to drive until you not even qualify, but quantify at that point, which is actually a Dan Foch original. That one actually is a, an original. <laughs> we do, we're just saying, in case people don't get the, the humor, Nick is not taking credit for all of these uh, Yes, yes. Idioms. If you're a new listener, go back and listen. We make fun of me quite a bit throughout the 140 plus episodes here. You're just um, like a, not only are you a dictionary, but you're like a fountain of idioms. Is that what they're called? Idioms? I think what they are. What did you just call me? <laughs> <laughs> so again, just to recap, properties with higher cash flow potential are likely to be located in areas with lower potential for significant appreciation. So again, you kind of have to choose one or the other and in managing 
rental properties requires time and effort, or at least you need to hire a property manager. So if it's not requiring time and effort, it still requires money. And uh, what needs to go right for you to make money using cash flow, your tenants or whoever is in that property need to pay you each month. That's pretty much it. That's cash flow. From my perspective, yeah, like you need to be able to, you need to avoid any major expenses, right? You need to be able to keep your expenses, your operational costs. Your OPEX, yeah. yeah. Low, and you need to keep your income high or growing. And so that, that that's literally it. Like there's not much more to it than that. So it's pretty simple, yeah. right? It's very input, output, business, nuts and bolts, right? Capital appreciation, let's talk about it. Let's talk about because it. Because there's, there's just more variables. And, so, and a lot of people have the... Is the word gumption like they they can you know they they can the boldness to mm. to pursue this against all of those variables to take the high risk position and have have earned massive returns as a result of it, but it is higher risk, especially in today's market when you know the speculative guess would be oh rates are going to come down eventually right it's like okay well rates are going to come down and prices are going to go up uh, I mean I don't know based on history it doesn't seem like so so that's kind of the bet you'd be making today as a ca- if you're in capital appreciation but capital appreciation is basically the increase in value of a property piece of real estate over time so investors would aim to make a profit by selling the property for more than they paid for it now there is a nickel original there once you sell that property you do experience a big money moment it's true and yeah, and you would, and and th- those are important, and they're and they're. Va- I'm going through one right now. I'm being bought out of an asset and out of a, a portion of our portfolio that mm-hmm. we're in, and getting some some capital or getting little, some little of the, bag of cash, as as someone yeah, says. Yeah, and and I've always wanted to be liquid in the recession, and I'm still not as liquid as I want to be, given like the amount of assets that I have. But most of them, because of switching costs, don't make sense for me to exit. Like it's like timing the market is ex- exceptionally expensive, right? Even if you just say like, not only is it hard and risky, it's expensive mm-hmm. to buy and sell a house once a year is going to cost you five percent in switching costs, plus the you know mental burden of doing it and the. And maybe that you can just get that back somewhere else, right? Or it, it's better. Like, I think one of the advantages of, of real estate is that it forces you to, to be a diamond hand. Like it's hard. You know what I mean? Yeah. It forces power. you to not. Yeah. It forces, it forces staying power. So, so the advantages of this, of, of capital appreciation investing is that it offers like the big, that big money moment, like, like Nick said, significant returns and, and it, and it forces that significant returns in in, or it forces you to ha- to accumulate that big piece in one vehicle and you get it in one shot. Yeah. Whereas cash flow, like over time, if you're not good at saving money and like putting that cash flow away and putting it in, in reinvesting it well, then that's not really that good, right? You know, if you're just going to burn through it, <laughs> like it's not, there's really no advantage. Easy to do these days. Yeah. And it, def- it, it requires less day to day. Like if you're just, you know, renting something out, maybe it's cash flow neutral or even losing money and you just forget about it for five or 10 years. Or it's and you, a piece and of you've land. gone to stay in power to hold that and to, yeah. and to realize yeah. those, Making those all monthly those losses kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Then you basically just wait, yeah. which is very easy to do. And then at the end, you just get a bunch of money. So that would be really the advantage, not as day-to-day involvement as like messaging tenants every month to collect rent, you know, like, or reminding them or whatever it is, or, or, dealing or with cashing checks. Stuff yeah. And, yeah. Hey, like fixing the basement's flooded. Yeah. I need a new dishwasher. Yeah. Stuff like that. Right. So there's, there's less of that, but there still would be some. Yeah. Yeah. This is still real estate at um, the end of the day. But if you are going like all the way with ca- uh, capital appreciation or, or the speculative play, like let's say a condo, like you don't have to do any of that. Mm-hmm. Right. So, or like a managed condo, maybe in an international market where it's right. literally totally hands off. You yeah. put, 
those things usually take a bunch more money up front to get in as well. Mm-hmm. And and then, yeah, you just essentially sit around and wait. For sure. So the, the important parts to think about it would be that the real estate market can be cyclical as we're learning right now. And that there's really no guarantee of this more short-term capital appreciation. I think in long-term, I don't say that real estate always goes up, but I do say that the buying power of a Canadian dollar certainly always goes down, it appears to. So you know, you'll know you'll make some earnings in that respect. And if you, if you depend solely on it, you're not generating an income stream. You're not really creating a business. You're holding basically like a stock or, you know, you, you are becoming almost like a trader. So you're not really creating this regular income stream, which is one of the primary reasons that people do like real estate, right? Why it has been a compelling asset class for a lot of people. And, and during that period of time for five years or whenever you're waiting for the asset to go up in value, you're not making anything. So even and this is true even if you are a condo investor like who's buying a pre-construction if you're putting out 100k in pre-con deposits it's doing nothing what's your opportunity so cost so there's an opportunity cost yeah. right and so these are just important considerations to to think about so a lot of investors and we would probably be among this and this is why I asked that question before about whether or not some of these tertiary markets could actually be going through a renaissance period which i think they could is it many investors choose a balanced approach and this is basically a combination of cash flow and capital appreciation, which if you're doing it right, you know, I, I've said many times on the show, good assets appreciate, right? How do you make an asset good? You make the cash flows on it good, make it earn a lot of income. And that combination approach gives you both the steady income and the potential for long-term appreciation. Yeah. They, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. I mean, you want your- It's far better if they're not. It's really. far better if they're not. You don't want- Exactly. Dan, you just said it. The more your property cash flows, the more likely it is to have better capital appreciation over time. I think that that's the case. I do, especially as we're moving more in towards a renter's economy, mm-hmm. more investment capital is going to be attracted to assets and they all want to earn yield, right? Yeah, like you think exactly. you think BlackRock's buying up houses in the US to lose money on them? Well, they could probably lose a couple bucks and be okay, but no, right. that 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 would go against investing principles and be more speculation. Yeah, and and the easy way to do this is if you want to buy in Toronto and and if you think, you know, or, or Vancouver or whatever and you're going to be cash flow negative at 80% loan to value, the easy way to get to cash flow, 35% loan to right, value. Right. Yeah, or 50. Like, yeah. you know, you can cash flow anything at 0% <laughs> loan to value, <laughs> yes. right? Like you buy something with that big bag of cash yeah. and, and it spits out 2500 bucks a month, you got no mortgage to pay. Yeah. I mean, you're still going to have to spend a couple hundred bucks on, you know, condo fees and and all the other bad stuff that that comes with all the other expensive stuff that comes with real estate. But yes, exactly. But it would cash flow and yeah. but then but then you're, you know, you're not getting the advantage of leverage, the fact that real estate can hold debt, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why most, many banks are comfortable lending on Canadian real estate. This is why you don't see, you know, there's a, a guy on Instagram who's, I think I sent him to you, who's doing like the condos in uh, Colombia, right? Yeah. And I, yeah. my first comment was like, what's the mortgage situation, right? And a lot of people, they can, there's like, you can't get a mortgage on this. It's like, okay, well, to be honest, like if I'm going to invest 300 grand in something that's going to make a 5% annual return, I'm buying the Walgreens stock, man, <laughs> that I showed you earlier. You, yeah, know? you can't travel to a Walgreens stock. Yeah. Yeah. But like, that's not why I would buy a condo know, in that place. Enough. Right. Yeah. So yeah, you can't Airbnb a Walgreens stock, but it pays you 9%, <laughs> right. And it's Walgreens. So not um, financial advice. Yeah. So, but it, 
if I'm buying something that I can't get leverage for, I'm just going to buy a stock mm-hmm. or like, or if it's going to, you know what I mean? Like to me, the trade-off of real estate is like, yeah, it's a little bit more management intensive, but you get access to leverage and it's not like go lever up and bro down or any of that stuff. Cause that's not how I feel. I feel like using a sensible amount of leverage and appropriate amount of leverage is probably the only way to really make real estate a sensible investment. Most other things outperform real estate without leverage. Real estate is really a leverage play. That's why it's an interest rate play. So, so I, anyway, to to think about comparing these two, it's it's really a market conditions thing, and and this is why it's great to have a podcast like ours in the current economy because we can redo this episode in a year and it could be a different answer. But in today's market, you know, if you're if you're in a seller's market with high property values, then focusing on cash flow is going to be challenging, and so you might have to speculate, and you know, investors might lean towards properties with strong appreciation potential, but we're not in a seller's market anymore. Actually, in fact, Canadian real estate is in a buyer's market for the first time in a decade, the entire country, based on months of inventory and sales to new listings ratio. And Toronto is in a strong buyer's market. Some cities like um, Wawa does a great chart on this, like Calgary's in, in a strong seller's market. Toronto is in a strong buyer's market. Quick dictionary, I guess, but buyer's market is when buyers are basically setting the prices. This means that there's more sellers than buyers and buyers have the, the pricing power. So usually greater than three months of inventory or a sales to new listings ratio below 40%, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Between 40 to 60% sales to new listings ratio. So that's basically the number of properties that sold this month divided by the number of properties that were listed last month, or sorry, in the same month is if that's if less than um, 40% of them are selling, then that's a, a buyer's market. If 40 to 60% are selling, then that's a balanced market. And if it's greater than 60%, then it's a um, seller's, seller's market. market. So Calgary, as an example, is... 80% of wow. property, yeah. And Toronto was like in the 30s. And we just came through a massive Toronto was in run the 70s, of like the seller's market, Yeah, so right? Q2 of 2022, Toronto was in 70% sales to new listings ratio. I don't even really like to use days on market. I don't think inventory is a good, uh, I don't think, because I think our flow of information is so fast that like in, a, in that three months of inventory- It's changed already. It's a different market next month, right? So I just use the immediate sales to new listings ratio. So what needs to go right for you to make money on capital appreciation? There's a variety of things, right? So I, I would say like the interest rates probably need to go on the path that you're assuming that they're on. All of these, every, think of the assumptions that you make and maybe you're just doing none and you're just like, oh, somebody on TikTok told me that real estate always, real estate goes, always up. goes up. Or maybe you just have this un- fundamental underlying belief that real estate always goes up, but real estate needs to go up <laughs> for, for the investment <laughs> to make sense, right? If you're not, so what, you know, house prices would need to rise market you picked would need to stay good, right? I mean, if you were buying in, if you're you know buying a pre-con in, I don't know, super fringe GTA, assuming that the global pandemic was going to be here like forever and, you know, you'd be Airbnb-ing it or somebody would be taking a go train to Toronto one day a week or whatever. Now the office is reopening and you know what I mean? Like there's or, just certain things you like- You moved what? out and you went to Bancroft and, yeah, you know, yeah. that price went up 90% and, and now has, has fallen the, the same way. Yeah. So you're right, Dan. I mean, and, and interestingly enough, all these things can also take place on cash flowing assets as well. And that's the result of something called cap rate compression. Now we've done full episodes on cap rate. So if you need a refresher, go back and listen to those. But cap rate compression takes place in tandem with a speculative market doing well. When markets are doing well, we see that phenomenon called cap rate compression realize itself. And this is kind of the the big reason that we do real estate from my perspective. And we'll get to the why of it later, but 
if you buy a buy for cap rate and for cash flow, you can increase the value of a property through being in the business of real estate. And when like a lot of people don't think about real estate investing this way, they don't think about getting it. You're investing in a business, and that business is real estate. And so, if you invest in a business, you want to improve that business. You want to improve the revenue that you can generate from it. You want to reduce the expenses that you can generate or that you that your your costs right. So, cost protection revenue increase. That's the, that's a good business formula. And you do this through becoming an expert operator, increasing the value of the property, maybe spending some money on capital expenditures. And this would increase the net, the NOI, the net operating income. And you're increasing one of the factors of the cap rate, which means that, and, and independent of you know you renovating the house and it increasing the value of the property as well, but if you're increasing the income, you're increasing one of the factors of the cap rate, which means that you can improve the valuation of your property. But the market can also improve the value of your property through that cap rate con- compression. So can you dictionary what cap rate compression is for me? I, w- I would I love to. Since I stole all of your other dictionaries. I episode? would love to. But before we before I dictionary cap rate compression, I just wanted to point out, you're so right, Dan. People buy real estate and, and you know whether you're buying a duplex or an Airbnb or whatever it is, and and they don't think about it as a business on the way in. And, you know, for a lot of people, it doesn't turn into a business until there's a few more. But if you buy one rental property, you're 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 it's not a side a re- hustle. Yeah, it's a side hustle. But building a business plan, and this doesn't mean, you know, you need a, a syllabus with, you know, multiple pages and chapters, write out a one page business plan. And, and again, that's something that we go over in the course and and how I think it's super important for people to go in knowing this. And that's all part of your investment thesis and and your, you know, two-year, five-year, 10-year plan that, that comes with real estate. Back to the dictionary, cap rate compression refers to a situation in the real estate market where the capitalization rate decreases over time. So that cap rate is a key metric used in real estate to evaluate the potential return on an investment property. It's calculated by dividing the property's NOI, that's the net operating income, by its current market value or likely its acquisition cost. So how much you actually spent on that property divided by the net operating income. And just quickly to remember, the formula for a cap rate is net operating income divided by the current market value or acquisition cost. And that gives you a decimal. And then you would multiply that by 100 to get the actual percentage. Exactly. And that's where you get your NOI from, your net operating income. Cap rates are expressed as a percentage. So if you listen to the show, you off, you, I mean, Dan, I think you're famously quoted as saying, you don't get out of bed for less than a seven cap. Yeah. Well, not not in today's rate environment. <laughs> you're, getting out for, you're getting out of bed for five caps these days or what? No, absolutely not. <laughs> so cap rates are expressed, expressed as a percentage and are used by investors to assess the relative risk and return of different real estate investments. So it's, again, it provides a great quick comparative analysis between two different properties. In general, a higher cap rate implies a higher potential return, but it also may indicate higher risk. Well, a lower cap rate suggests lower risk, but likely lower returns. Cap rate compression occurs when cap rates decrease, meaning that the market value of the property has increased relative to its income. So again, your property value is going up. Your income is likely not decreasing, but staying the same. Now, several factors can contribute to cap rate compression. Dan, what would be the first one? So the the biggest one is just the value of property goes up for whatever reason. So if property values rise faster than the the growth in net operating income, then the cap rate will decrease. 
the next thing that can affect cap rate compression is increased demand for real estate. So high demand for real estate assets, often due to, you know, ripping bull market conditions or economic growth can lead to increased property values and lower cap rates. And the reason a lot of this takes place is because of decreased interest rates, right? So, and there's a rule that we use on the show, uh, which I'll get to, but when interest rates decline, the cost of financing real estate for investors decreases, and this would increase demand for assets, like Nick mentioned, leading to higher property values and that cap rate compression. So remember that we use that rule that cap rate must be higher than the interest rate. And most, this is like pretty common stuff. Like you see this, you see it all the time on Twitter. How are people buying properties where the cap rate is below the interest rate in the market right now? Big bags of cash, I guess. Yeah, I guess they're just cash investors really. Or they obviously think that they can, you know, change the income of that property by kicking out the tenant and mm-hmm. putting a new one in, right? Or or I mean, I mean, we've seen this in some cases they're they're larger, maybe like sub institutions institutional level investors that they're looking at very long-term plays here, right? Yeah, like Where a pension fund. Well, a pension fund would buy 2%, 3% yeah. well, yield I mean, stuff. And right? we've seen large multifamily stuff still trade in the GTA at, you know, three and a half to four and four and a half percent cap rates. I mean, a lot less because that stuff was yeah. likely trading at a seven or an eight, you know, a year or two ago. But yeah, I mean, I sold a mixed use ground floor retail with four residential units and it was like a 3.75 cap. Yeah. Was, but the owner, the new owner is planning to increase the revenue. Yeah. So. And I mean, there's different use cases for that and, and whatnot. But yeah, so so the easiest way to look at this and we'll, we'll go through an example, but so when interest rates are at 3%, cap rates could come down from a, a five or six to the three or 4% range, right? So, you know, if, if, if interest rates are 3%, which they were, you know, you could get a fixed rate in the threes during COVID, mm-hmm. then Less that's why, that. right? Yeah. yeah, it's in the twos or whatever. That's why people were buying at fours or three and a half caps, right? So the spread. So then the next question would be like, how would evaluation differ on a property that has a, let's say, let's use a standardized easy NOI of 100,000 at a 5% cap rate versus a 4% cap rate? So let's answer that question. But first, let me cover the last factor that could impact valuation, which of course, and we've been talking about this a lot more recently because it's the ever shifting invisible hand market sentiment. So Positive market sentiment and increased investor confidence can drive up property values and result in cap rate compression, right? We've seen this. The bull market is fueled by other people watching other people make a lot of money. And, you know, people were buying insane amounts of real estate due to literally one thing. The driving force of purchasing Canadian real estate was FOMO. So think about 2021, right? Everyone wanted to invest in real estate and you couldn't find a decent investment property in the GTA for a cap rate that would make sense today. But now think about today. You can't find someone to, to invest. invest. Yeah. At any cap rate. Yeah. I know. Yeah. It's like in the, a lot of markets are no bid for investments, right? I mean, they don't pencil out, right? And I mean, those same markets, if you're if you're not able to get cash flow and they're not big capital appreciation markets, well, what's the point? For sure. Yeah. So we'll, we'll jump back to that question that I mentioned, because I think it's interesting and we can use it to wrap up. So the valuation of a property is basically closely tied to and established by the NOI and the cap rate. So when, when if you're using cap rate or income to value a property, and appraisers will do this for this type of prop for an investment property. There's three different ways that an appraiser values a property: replacement cost, new. So the 
cost to rebuild it. One of our favorite metrics. Yeah, so they'll use cost approach, income approach, and then direct comparison approach. So this is the cap rate would be the income approach and they'll use direct comparison. They'll find three comparable buildings and say this one sold at a four cap, this one sold at a four and a half cap, this one sold at a five cap. The average is four and a half. I'm going to apply a four and a half to this building. And and the comps are probably the most well-known, right? Because that's that happens with single family, right? I mean, that that's a classic thing realtors do, yeah. right? What are, the, what are your neighbor's house sell yeah. for? What the guy down the street sell for? Yeah, right. So the cap rate is used to convert the NOI into an estimated property value. So this is basically repackaging the NOI formula, or sorry, the cap rate formula. So the formula for cal- calculating property value based on a cap rate is property value equals the NOI divided by the cap rate. And the cap rate has to be represented in decimals for that to work. So let's use the example that I gave before of $100,000 NOI to illustrate the difference between the valuation of a property with the same NOI. NOI doesn't change. The income of the property does not change at a 5% cap rate versus a 4% cap rate, Nick. Okay. So the property value at a 5% cap rate, let's say $100,000 divided by 0.05, that represents the 5% cap rate equals $2,000. $2 million. $2 I would gladly that, buy that go. off you yeah. for 2000 bucks. <laughs> we got a couple of zeros there. $2 million. So I'll say that again. Property value at a 5% cap rate, 100000 divided by 5%. 0.05 equals $2 million. A 4% cap rate, the property value stays the same, but now you are dividing that $100,000, which is your net operating income, how much that property makes. You're dividing that by a 4% cap rate represented as 0.04, and that spits out $2.5 million. So all of a sudden, there's $500,000 on the table. In this example, the property value is higher when using a 4% cap rate compared to a 5% cap rate. This is because a lower cap rate implies a higher property value. The cap rate serves as a multiplier for the net operating income. The lower the cap rate, the higher the resulting property value. And so it's just important to understand the way the market factors exist here. You know, a four cap is going to be probably um, more desirable. You know, you'd be paying, you're paying a premium at that point Mm -hmm. compared to, I mean, like, like, uh, you know, you mentioned like I say I don't get out of bed for a seven cap, but that's because <laughs> yeah. in order to buy, I'm buying like with a with a rate in the sixes or yeah. the high fives, right? And so still barely a spread there at this right, point, right? Yeah, and if I want to be cash flow positive, like just the math, the way the math works is like I can't find something, and and that's fine if other people want to go buy sixes that they might know something that I don't, or that maybe they're putting a little bit more weight on the speculative value, right? They're saying, oh yeah, you know, I'm willing to be cash flow neutral or you know, don't lose money, by the way, like don't be cash flow negative. It's not a good idea. It's not a strategy. It's a lot. You're creating a liability, but it's, it's weighing those, those differences. And, you know, the other piece is risk weighting it. So like maybe you're buying at a 4%, but you, you know, you feel, I mean, to be fair, like us buying properties in the six or 7% cap rate range, there's a lot more risk with it. Like, it's not hard to see. Like if, four, if you're buying a three and a half cap, you're buying in Toronto. Tenant pool is different. It's predictability like, of capital. Pre- key. Yeah, predictability of ca- of capital appreciation is is right. You have yeah. a higher higher degree of predictability. You're probably getting six year over year plus six year over year right. capital appreciation. You know you can release it if a, a unit comes up. You don't yeah. have to deal with you know two three months of vacancy. You might not be dealing with some other social challenges that come with some of the rougher buildings, you know, hanging out with police all the time and stuff like that. We know we made friends with a couple of cops in in our markets. So, and then, you know, and then on the other hand at a seven cap, it's, you know, you're, you're starting to get some, some headaches associated with some stuff. So there is a bit of a trade-off. Like I'm not willing, I'm not, I'm not completely dismissing that, but this is where 
with with that set if you know you're getting a seven cap there's a lot more problems that are that you're that are able to be solved like you're paying the premium for the, all of the problems that have already been solved for exactly. you exactly and yeah. on a seven cap you're you're paying a discount because of all of the problems. Because you are buying more headaches and solving those problems. And if you start solving those problems, then you should be able to lower, sell that out at a lower cap rate, right? Yeah. Sell it out at a five or, you know. Well, even, even in the markets that we look at, right? Like there's there's still, there's there's seven and eight caps and, and even higher. Like where we bought like, you know, 12 caps, but we've had to put a bunch of work into them. And we're like, why did other investors pass over this? And it's because they don't want to see those headaches. And then, you know, a few blocks away in and let's say a different graded neighborhood in these secondary and tertiary markets, you still have the, the three and a half, four and a half, five caps that don't make a ton of sense right now. And it's just someone that's gone and, and put time and energy into that asset and has increased the capital appreciation, but decreased the, the cash flow. So, you know, investors typically use cap rates as part of their due diligence. And you should be, if you're a listener to this show and you haven't started using cap rates as, as part of your due diligence process, I really urge you to do so. And again, it's really great for just comparing the potential returns of different real estate investments and assessing their risk adjusted performance. So again, this cap rate stuff is really just a risk and reward play here. Keep in mind that while the cap rate is a useful tool, you should be using other factors, obviously, location, property condition, market trends, and all the other data and analysis that we've talked about for hundreds of hours on this show at this point. Yeah. I mean, the one thing we, I don't know if we've mentioned, I think we've mentioned GRM like once or twice, but like I've started using GRM because I, I was gross really looking at- Gross rent multiplier. Yeah. So a gross rent multiplier is the easier way to calculate or to compare two properties side by side. I don't think you'll see like appraisers use it to value a property much, but- it's just easy because you don't have to have the expense profile. Like you don't have to know the net. You can just use the gross rent and take two properties side by side and say, okay, I know the gross rent of, you know, these two properties, they're both worth 500 K, but this one makes, you know, a thousand bucks a month. And this one makes 2000 bucks a month. And you can calculate based on that. So the GRM is basically your gross rents divided by the, sorry, it's, it's the price of the property divided by the gross rents, mm -hmm. annual gross rents. And Whichever one has the uh, lower number actually is the better one. If you want to invert that and basically come up with a gross cap, so it's like almost like a score, you could do that too. So just take your gross income and divide it by the purchase price, and then you have like a very, very rough cap rate calculation. But it's the point of this is like to look look at a hundred deals and be able to say. And I just literally built a spreadsheet to do this. And some of our friends actually on the show, Door Insight as an example, they're going to be building this because like they I showed them how I analyze a deal, and he's like, yeah, I can build that as like a Chrome extension and amazing pop it into a list and you can just compare. But the point is being able to sort and say, okay, here's the, here's my short list. Here's my 10 best based on a GRM. Now I'm going to do an, now I'm going to find the expenses, model those out on a cap rate and find out what's the best from that 10. Yeah. Yeah. That spreadsheet you built was, was pretty awesome. I'm so happy the door insight guys are going to make it a little sexier. And, and that along with many other things, Dan is, is some of the stuff that we're offering to the people within our course. Those are some of the, you know, let's say proprietary digital assets that that they have access to for sure i think that's i think that's a pretty good uh Couple run thoroughbred episodes yeah. these days. so again cap rate cash flow capital appreciation speculation investments a lot to go over there and naturally we take the cop-out answer of yeah it's just just do both just do both yeah, yeah. right right like the a blend more, of both the more the better Thanks so much for listening, everybody. All the links in the show notes. Check them out. Reach out if you have any questions and leave a review. They really mean a lot. Thanks so much. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. 
Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.